right, let's do it then, yeah. Hi there. I want to talk to you about Duck. No, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Monkey, this is not Nam. This is Bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're neighbor. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I am your host, Uh, not joined by my usual co-host Andrew, instead I've got a special guest that I'm going to introduce to you in a couple seconds to cover probably one of the most controversial movies of the 1980s. But I just wanted to mention a couple things right off the bat. Due to popular demand, we are now available on almost every single major podcast platform. So you can get the Cult Film Companion wherever you choose to get your podcast. Just click on our website. The link is in the description for the episode. And all the links for the various podcasts from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Stitcher, Deezer... I, I can't even remember all of them. iHeartRadio. Uh, there's so many that we're on. So wherever you choose to get your website, uh, podcasts, uh, we are available there. And if we're not on your platform of choice, reach out to me on my email, coltfilmcompanion at gmail.com, or hit me up on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter, uh, at coltfilmcomp. I also want to mention that we are... Pr- a proud member of the Blind Knowledge Collective, www, that's three W's, I think I might have said four, but three W's, blindknowledge.com. It's a great creative collective where you can find podcasts, uh, video casts of all different sorts of topics, and we're very proud to be a part of it. They just... uh, They've been in production for a while. They just launched the website. We are a featured podcast on there. We are also a featured podcast on Newsly at Newsly.me. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android that picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the Internet, the entire web becomes listenable. You browse from articles from topics that you choose. You can follow any topic as specific as you would like, from sports to science to Bitcoin to the Kardashians, if that's your bag, and it'll find the latest articles and then read them to you. They have podcasts from over 50 countries, and our podcast, Cold Film Companion, is there as a featured podcast. Download and use Newsly for free now at www.newsly.me. The link in the, is also in the description. And please use our promo code, C-U-L-T-F-1-L-M. That's Cult Film. You drop the I, you pop in a one, and you get a month free premium subscription. So, like I said, I have a very special guest with me today to cover a very important movie for various reasons that we'll get into, but it's also a very controversial movie, and we are going to be talking about uh, director William Friedkin, best known for The Exorcist and The French Connection, 
a movie that he did in the early 80s with Al Pacino called Cruising. But before we dive into everything about Cruising and uh, what makes the movie so great, what makes the movie a cult favorite, and what made it so controversial, I first want to introduce my very special guest. His name is Melvin. You can find him at Twitter at Robopulp. Is that correct, Melvin? Robopulp? Yes, that's right. At Robopulp on Twitter. Good afternoon, everybody. And, uh... You are a great content creator, and you've got a comic book up on there on your website, correct? And that uh, I'm going to make sure to include the the link to the uh, the comic book. Could you just give us a brief rundown, you know, like thirty seconds about what your comic is, so we can uh, get the the listeners a little taste? Uh, yeah, sure, I can. Okay, so I'm going to try to keep it spoiler free, but the basic idea is I took. Uh, concepts from conspiracy theory that I'm very fascinated with, specifically Men in Black. And by Men in Black, I don't mean like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. That's a fun movie. But Men in Black, as originally conceived, or the earliest um, mention of Men in Black, they were terrifying figures. So I took that, and I kind of added something in consumer research, a little bit of the paranoia that we all feel with our devices, you know, the, the feeling that they're listening in on us, that you can have a conversation about something let's say a particular brand of food or anything and next thing you know that pops up on your search before you even do anything you know on your phone or on your tablet it's terrifying these two elements and i crafted a a little thriller and that is all i'm going to say about that but it's titled the plot and if you go to my profile on twitter at robopulp there is a link there that if you follow it you just leave your email and it will be dropped as a pdf right to your box and soon i expect to be able to put a link also on a website that someone is putting together for me but um that's still in the work but uh, as soon as that's available i will make it available maybe i'll have to create a link tree so i can put both links but right now the easiest access is um uh twitter at rollerpole if you don't have a twitter but you have an insta there is, I have one there. There's no content, but there is a link. If you go to robo.pulp on Instagram, you can also find a link there. And it's titled The Plot. And if you're a fan of conspiracy theories, if you're a fan of that grayish area of that the X-Files, the original X-Files study, and you like thrillers, then you will enjoy The Plot. <laughs> you know, I am so glad that I asked you because... Uh, just a little, uh, this is the second time we're, we're our, unfortunately, the audio got corrupted the first time around. This is the second time we're doing the episode, and I failed to ask you about what the concept of your comic is, and I'm so glad that I, I did now, because my co-host, Andrew, loves this kind of stuff, so I'm going to make sure that he checks oh, it nice. out. Um, he's going to absolutely love it. Uh, I, I I think that that kind of lends itself very well to the uh, cult films in general, um, cause we were having a discussion uh, before we, we talk about cruising. Can we uh, just, if you could sum up in, uh, a minute or two, what you consider to be a cult movie? Cause I, I'm always curious what people consider a cult movie. Use the very interesting word the first time that we recorded. All right. Well, this is a very tricky thing and I'm really going to probably ramble because I don't think I can give a definition. I can give a set of parameters or, or some ideas on what a cult film is. Sure. Because even as we speak, and in fact, the tweet that uh, prompted me to contact you to join in the conversation that led to us now talking like this was one where you asked if a cult film can be made on purpose. And I was like, no, like, um, I, I, um, I, 
answer many things, but uh, the bottom line is, first of all, I, uh, a cult film is something that happens almost by accident. Absolutely. I think time is a big yep. factor, too. Time is, like, something that is released. And, in fact, what we were talking about now is a good example of that. Like, cult films, predominantly my, my experience, or rather uh, my study of cult films, is that they tend to come from an out of nowhere. They tend to come unexpected. But sometimes they can be the opposite. Sometimes it can be something that comes from a studio and it's either misunderstood or unappreciated, such as the movie that we're discussing today, which you know features an A, a list at the time, an A, a director, an A list actor of, of ample studio resources. But for whatever reason, the movie wasn't appreciated in its time. And right. so it sort of slid into that great area of cult films, which is. Movies, that, as you would say in your introduction, movies that are off the radar, under the radar, or ahead of the radar. Something that is just, people are not quite ready for it. That, that's maybe, in a, on a, from a criticism aspect, it's something that people are not ready for. It. It's maybe it's a little too aggressive, it's a little too forward, it's a little too... Dangerous. Controversial, and I'm making quotation marks when I say controversial. Sure. One aspect that used to be a criteria for me, but I think that's changing is, unavailability a cult film was something that was not playing at the big glitzy cinema uh, multiplex in in your hometown this is something that you have to go out of your way to find it you have to go to the theater that showed grindhouse movies uh kung fu flicks uh porn films you have to go to that part of the neighbor that you probably wouldn't go to but if you were a movie fan and maybe your friends told you oh there's this movie and i'm not gonna name any titles but it's this really bizarre movie and I think you would like it, but it's in it, it's in the Elgin, let's say, just to name a theater in New York, because uh, the Elgin, I believe, is where El Topo was first screened. And I think for an entire year, that movie was screened in that theater. Wow. So that is probably the criteria of cult films. They're a little bit, they're hard to get around. Like, it takes an open mind to be able to appreciate what they have to offer. And they were a little hard to find, but that is changing now because of Vinegar Syndrome, Blue Underground. And um, I think maybe I would say Alamo Drafthouse. Sure. And even to a degree, I would say also the Criterion Collection, they've rescued these movies from obscurity and they're putting them out in very nice, handsome 2 and 4K remastered editions, often with extras also. Like if the people involved are still alive, like um, some movies are old, some cult movies are from decades ago. So sure. if the directors, writer, producer, actor, anybody involved in the making is still alive, you can actually get insights into what happened. But I guess for now, the primary criteria is something that is just extra. You said you said you said to just be able to enjoy it. It's something that it's it can just it can be too much for some people. It can almost they can react almost in a panic way. Right. Or they'll just what the hell is this? I don't get it. Like this movie sucks. Yeah. It's that is something that you have to be a little open minded. You have to have an open mind to be able to if not appreciate it, then at least understand it or at least see where they were coming from. Right. Where is your idea of a cult film? Uh, I, I, I'm on the same belief that you cannot make a cult film on purpose. I think you brought up a very interesting point where uh, it used to be availability, but um, I still think that you um, you kind of have to seek out these movies. you got to seek them out on Criterion. you got to seek them out on Blue Underground. you got to seek them out on Vinegar Syndrome. And um, uh, two companies that I'd also like to mention, Kino Lorber, Puts out a great deal of, uh, yes, of yes. and uh, the movie you're talking about today, Cruising. I got a very nice uh, version on Arrow, uh, Arrow distribution. But let's talk about Cruising because 
Uh, it's one of those movies, and like uh, I always say that a cult movie can come from any director, it can come from any time period, it could have any actor in it. There's just something, an intangible, something that you just can't kind of put your finger on that makes it a cult movie. And we're talking about a movie directed by William Friedkin, uh, a critically acclaimed director. Uh, the Exorcist is still, uh, many uh, still claim it to be the scariest movie ever made. And he also made The French Connection. And then he decided that he wanted to do this, uh, this movie Cruising. And I'm going to give a little bit of background about the movie Cruising. It was written and directed by William Friedkin, but it was based on a uh, a novel called Cruising by a New York Times uh, reporter named Gerald Walker, who reported on a serial killer that was targeting gay men between the years of 1962 and 1979. And this movie, uh, the book was published uh, in the 70s. Uh, producer Jerry Weintraub, who had previously worked with William Friedkin on The French Connection, purchased the rights for Cruising and wanted to turn it into a movie. He approached a couple directors, one of which was a, a, a young Steven Spielberg, who turned down the opportunity to make Cruising to make Jaws. Brian De Palma was uh, very interested in making the movie. Uh, but was unable to obtain the rights. I don't think, I, I'm guessing there was some disagreement between him and the producers. Um, De Palma very much so has, especially in the in the 70s and the 80s, was, was very vision-orientated. So I, 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 would, I would think that he would definitely need to have the right producer on board. But uh, producer Jerry Weintraub uh, suggested the book to William Friedkin. William Friedkin read the book, wasn't all that interested in it, felt it was a bit dated, and uh, it, it kind of it, it fell to the back burner. But then, between the years of 1977 and 1978, six victims turned up in the Hudson River in trash bags, in plastic bags, and they were called the Bag Murders. And Friedkin read these articles and was very interested. The articles were actually done by... Um, another journalist, an openly gay journalist named Arthur Bell, who we're gonna we're gonna come back to to talk about. He reported on these murders. Friedkin combined the ideas of these murders with the idea of cruising, but wanted to update the the setting to be the nearly nineteen eighties and into the the gay leather bars, the underground scene of the gay community in New York City. And came up with this concept of uh, a cop, seemingly heterosexual, um, although towards the end of the movie his uh, his sexuality might be in question. Um, portrayed by Al Pacino, Detective Steve Burns is brought in to investigate the series of murders. We got body parts showing up in the Hudson River. The opening scene of the movie is a tugboat. And the tugboat uh, comes across, I think it's a hand, um, is the first body part that we're shown. But it, it seems that there's been a series of these uh, dismemberments of uh, body parts showing up in the Hudson River. 
and Captain Edelson, portrayed by the powerful Paul Sorvino, and I say powerful because he's a large man. He's got a, he's always got such a strong presence on screen, and that's um, that's on full display here in Cruising. Who calls up? Uh, yeah. He calls up Detective Steve Burns, played by Al Pacino, and asks him if he wants to to, to go undercover to try to solve these murders. And the character that Pacino portrays is based on an actual uh, undercover cop, uh, Randy Jurgensen, uh, who served as the technical advisor for the film. And um, then we're we're kind of thrown into this 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 world. And before we get into the the world of cruising, I want to also mention one of the other interesting backstories about cruising is that previously in the exorcist um there was a scene where they're doing some medical tests on 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 reagan who uh this is before they decide that she's been possessed so they're trying to to figure out what's going on with her medically and there's a scene shot in a hospital in the radiology department and instead of using actors Friedkin used actual medical techs and doctors for some of these scenes and there's a scene uh like i said in the radiology department with a medical tech that's that's still included in the in the exorcist but this this medical tech was eventually accused and incarcerated as being the perpetrator of some of those bag murders of the uh the hudson river and um friedkin actually went to talk to this individual and he didn't mention whether or not the 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 individual confessed to any of the murders but he just kind of wanted to get like the mindset of someone that might be perpetrating that but what we get here in cruising is uh, a look into the underground scene in New York City of the gay community a very uh, a fragment of the population in these leather bars where cruising, if you're not familiar with cruising, um, is basically looking for anonymous or semi-anonymous, uh, no strings attached sex. Um, and in the case of cruising, we are of course talking about, uh, men, but, um, Let's just uh, let's talk about the first time. So you saw cruising for the first time what, a couple of years ago. Yes, yeah, I was listening to a podcast uh, where they were discussing it, and one of the hosts of the podcast is a very it's a big music person. So whenever they went on break, they would play uh, snippets of the songs in the soundtrack, and I was like, this is really cool music. Like I love this sort of like um, aggressive like uh, rock. May, almost like a punk rock type of situation. So based on that, I actually went to see the movie. More interested in the music than in the movie itself. Like I knew from the podcast that it was controversial, but controversy is something that I have mixed feelings about. Controversy is something that sometimes it's the person seeing the controversy more than the person perpetrating the controversy that causes the controversy. Sure. And I see this movie, and okay, I can see how it can make you uncomfortable, but as a movie itself, as a we can call it a murder mystery. Absolutely. It's a really well put together murder mystery. It's really well staged. Like It's very well executed. The characters are very fascinating. Pacino is an interesting character because he is a bit of a blank slate. 
And by the end of the movie, we kind of sort of learned something about it, but not that much. And the movie also, we'll get into it soon, leaves some questions about who he is really. Um, but as a movie movie, it's really well made. But I can see how some people may have an issue with that because the, the, what the movie requires is for um, Burns, Al Pacino's character, to go undercover. And he has to go to, as you pointed out, these places that are, um, you know, where uh, gay men hang out for for cruising for anonymous or semi-anonymous sex and the atmosphere is very um it's a, a unique form of homosexuality it's very macho driven homosexuality very aggressive very uh, almost toxic like we right now toxic masculinity is on the air a lot it's like an in, in our culture a lot i would say that this is a toxic form of homosexuality because it's very aggressive everything about it is very um my match is very much about like grabbing what you want and when you go to these places everybody is like leather and which i guess is part of the the outfit maybe that's part of the outfit but everyone is walking around with their shoulders squared back chest out staring hard at each other and uh sweat also like sweaty everybody's smoking like that is one thing the movie succeeds in sort of giving you a sense of like the smell like i was watching these people like everybody's close together and I guess it's summer, and it's like everybody is sweating. And I'm like, man, I can smell this movie. Like, I can smell these places. Everything about it, it had this very claustrophobic feeling. And also because this is post-COVID era where we've been li living with two years of this social distancing. The Everybody's so packed together, just gave me anxiety. And then on top of that, you have the sweat, the smell of the cigarette, beer all over the place. I'm like, wow, what this place must smell like. I just... Uh, it's not for me. No. And I can see how that could offset some people. And because we stay in the in this area, like the first half of the movie, I can see how some people may have a hard time not wanting to sit through the entire movie. Right. But if you can get past that, the movie, again, is very skillfully stages, you know, uh, murder set pieces with um, Al Pacino going into this place. And at first kind of fumbling, not kind of knowing exactly what to do. And by the way, I'm... Even though we're recording, this is the second time we're recording this, you mentioned. I forgot to mention the first time, there's a county of my Powers Booth. Like, um, Powers Booth is kind of our guide to the to the, the code of these places. Like, um, And I like how this happens because in the movie, you see the handkerchiefs. There's some shots, like, to waist level where you see handkerchiefs. Right, right, handkerchiefs, right. Like yeah. Yellow handkerchief, um, red handkerchief, and so on. And they're on different sides of the back pocket. But you're not, you don't find out till later when Al Pacino goes into a store and Powers Booth is at the counter just sitting there and he explains what the handkerchiefs are for, what the color means and what it means when it's on the right pocket or on the left pocket. Right. And uh, it was such a fun little thing to have during the movie. And that's it. It's just this little scene where uh, Powers Booth explains to Burns what the, what that means, what you know, how that works, the code behind these handkerchiefs. And that's it. We never see him again. Right. So... I probably told you more than you needed to know. <laughs> no, no, that no, that's fine. Uh, yeah, like you said, uh, Al Pacino, he's basically our 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 conduit, our our entrance into this this world. If you're not familiar with it, um, neither is he. So we're we're he's our our tour guide. Well, not no, that's not correct because he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just kind of like. We're along with him, like figuring this world out. And like you said, there's this all these scenes with these handkerchiefs. The only one that uh, maybe because I have the mind of a 13 year old, but I just remember that the yellow handkerchief means that you like water sports and 
I'm not. Mm, to- I'm yes. not talking about water skiing or tubing here. I'm talking about the uh, the uh, the <laughs> urination kind of water sports. But um, r- so the cinematography was done by James Conter, who had previously lit movies for um, William Friedkin, and Friedkin gave Conter the opportunity to actually shoot this movie and uh, be the director of photography, and he. Conter wanted to shoot this movie in black and white, and um, either Friedkin shot it down, but more likely the the, the studio shot it down. The um, at the time, making uh, I mean, if you could do a movie in color, the the studios want you to do a movie in color. Um, but anyway, for these scenes, especially in the in the bar scenes, they're very the scenes at night are very very monochromatic. Um, we got white t-shirts white uh, i i don't like the term but white wife beaters you know black pants black leather <laughs> it's it's very monochromatic and but these these scenes of these bars like you said um you can smell the cigarettes you can smell the cheap beer um and you can almost like yeah you can almost feel the humidity because like these these were underground bars which like literally means a lot of times that you you might have to go you have to go down down a flight of stairs to get into these bars you're not going up a flight of stairs to get to the penthouse you're going down a flight of stairs into like a grimy basement under a bait and um and uh to research the movie, Friedkin and, and the producers and, uh, you know, the, the cinematographer and a lot of people behind the scenes, they they, they actually went to these bars to, to kind of really check them out and to really get a sense for them because this was not a world that was familiar to them. And it's very interesting. Uh, Friedkin, Friedkin has gone on the record to say that this movie and the scenes are the portrayal of these bars and in this lifestyle is not em- emblematic of anything. It's simply the background for a murder mystery. And that's what I think a lot of people, I, the first time I tried to watch this movie, I was in my twenties and, um, I guess I was going through a machismo phase, a macho phase. You know, I was a big fan of Al Pacino and I wanted to pretty much see anything Al Pacino was in. But uh, at the time, my mindset was, I don't want to see Al Pacino in a gay bar dancing with other men. <laughs> and, and, like, and what I did, so I didn't finish the movie. And, and now that, you know, in the past couple of years, I've, you know, I've gotten over that, my insecurities, and um, just kind of say, you know, you know, it's just, it's a murder mystery. It just so happens. There's no, I mean, there's very, very little uh, the, the violence is more, the violence is more graphic than any sexual activity that we see and um if you can kind of uh, get over that then it's it's a great murder mystery and that that's kind of like what the i mean what this whole movie hangs on is that it's a very intriguing mystery because we don't know who the murderer is we're we're along for the ride as Pacino puts together these clues and he comes up with these different suspects and yeah we're we're just along for a murder mystery so Friedkin you know he went to these bars and he said that you know a lot of times these bars had theme nights whether it be cop night or leather night or jockstrap night where you know and he had to he, he had <laughs> we to, those, yeah. yeah he had to get like he had to to don these personas 
in order to to get this experience and he wanted so this movie especially especially the 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 club scenes the bar scenes are shot in a very documentary style um work we're just kind of like the camera is very passive and it kind of there's not a lot of quick cuts or anything um but we're, we just get a sense of what this what this lifestyle, what this nightlife is kind of kind of all about. And he wanted to film in actual clubs. Some of them gave him permission, some of them didn't. But um, in order to to gain access to film in these clubs, he actually had to talk and work, well, not work, but he had to get permission from the mafia. He didn't specify which particular families, but, Apparently, the mafia owned a great deal of these bars, and um, the majority of the the bar and club scenes were filmed at a place called the Hellfire Club, and uh, in the movie, um, they they call it the Mine Shaft because, of course, they call it the Mine Shaft. It's a gay bar in the eighties. <laughs> Why wouldn't they call it the Mine Shaft? Uh, but and to your point about the music, though. Uh, something that I definitely think that mm, that yeah, works yeah. that works so well in this movie's benefit is that at the time in the early uh, when this movie was shot in the well when it was being developed in the late seventies and when it was shot, um, I mean it was released in nineteen eighty so it was shot in shot in seventy nine, uh, seventy eight, seventy nine. Uh, the music that was being played in these clubs, while yes there was a lot of black leather and it seemed to be uh, kind of macho men and aggressive kind of uh, uh, sexuality going on. A lot of the music was very pop orientated. It was very st- we still had disco being played, and mm-hmm. and I think that if you know, it's kind of weird that you know he kind of he wanted to make it a documentary style, but I, maybe he had the foresight. Maybe he didn't. But whatever it was, it was a stroke of genius. That he said, ah, no, 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 we're not going with the pop music. We're not going with the disco music. In these club scenes, we get aggressive punk music a lot of the times. Uh, the Germs, the notorious <clears throat> famous band um, from California, the, the punk band uh, that famously only released one album. And they released one album. They also contributed it to the soundtrack to cruising, that was their. Those are the two, uh, their big two claims of fame. They, they provide a great deal of music. Um, the the band, another band that provided some music was a band called Rough Trade. And in one of the one of the club scenes, it seems like we've got a Parliament Funkadelic track. But, um, I mean, the music helps not to date this movie. I mean, some of the 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 clothing and. Al Pacino's perm certainly dates it to the eighties, but 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 the but the music, like you said, it's it's so good that like regardless of what you think about the the movie, like if you love punk rock, you love like grungy rock groups, and uh, I mean th- this soundtrack is kick ass, right? I would agree. Yeah, like um. It, that's essentially that's what drove me to the movie listening to those those little sound clips and that other podcast on the in the movie and how that movie sort of 
I mean, the the music acts as a almost like a an accelerator. Like the movie, the first half of the movie, we are in these places, and that's what you hear. That's predominantly what you hear in in, in that part of the in the first half of the of the movie. And the overall combined effect for me, um, with the cinematography, the the outfits, the attitude, was a uh, science fiction. It had like a, almost like a cyberpunk feel. You, you had that flat cinematography that is uh, monochromatic. Then you have more or less leather jeans and this cold like oh yeah, like flat and a little bit cold and the feeling of them because there's also scenes of them hanging out in the park we see them like a, under a bridge and i'm presumably central park you have all these uh, men just hanging out just the same thing just slicing each other up sort of checking each other out like merchandise almost and the feeling is science fiction with like a cyberpunk feel to it like a how would I describe it? Oh yeah, okay. Um, um a Borosian feel to the movie, like mm. as in William S. Burroughs, which made me speculate that William Freaking might have read the work of William S. Burroughs because one uh, sort of uh, how would I say one overlying aspect about the fiction of William S. Burroughs is that he had these visions of a world where there were no women, like women were either dead or they went to another planet. And the world was just completely overrun by these um, by these very aggressive men who were constantly sexing each other up and sort of chasing each other. And the first half of the movie, especially the club sequences, uh, put you in that place. Like they feel science fiction to me. And as a sort of a science fiction fan, that that was something that made me uh, that drew me to the movie. Even though the like I said, this aggressive form of homosexuality was hot footing, it, it looked cool. There was something cool and appealing to it as well. Yeah, that's that's and another thing. Like I said, the music just sells you even further on it. That music was just so awesome, so like hip and cool that it just like you know, like okay, you know, if this was a place maybe like for people who are heterosexual who are maybe a little bit afraid of that, you know, of the homosexuality, like well, if if it wasn't for the homosexuality, I'd be down with it. Like the movie sells you on time. The movie gives you a little hook of like, listen to this, man, isn't it awesome? Like it's this cool. But then at the same time, the cinematography is uh, very, uh, like you said, documentary. Like very, uh, I pull it hands off. It doesn't pass judgment. It's just simply showing you things. Things are happening, and Pacino is moving through it. And Pacino is sort of like a our avatar. Pacino is sort of in, at the beginning of the movie. He's confused. He's a little bit unsure of himself, but gradually he gets more confident. And and the uh, I kind of lost my train of thought. But yeah, like uh, the music. The music is a, a big selling point. If you don't like the movie. You like rock, you will love the soundtrack. Right, and and I, 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 you know, as a heterosexual, I was I was put off by the sexual aspects, like I said early on. Uh, but I mean, as you grow and mature, I mean, like this movie was made. You know, there was. Um, we'll talk. We're going to talk about the gay community in a minute. But you know, predominantly, this movie was made by heterosexual men. And I mean, yes. It, it, no movie is gonna. You're not gonna watch this movie and all of a sudden be become gay. That's just a silly. You know, this is a silly thing. Uh, but like, you know, when yes, I was a yeah. when I was a young snot nosed kid in my early twenties, I just wasn't. You know, I was just like, yeah, I, I don't want to watch this. I don't want to watch this. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, yeah, it can be uncomfortable. Yeah, it can. And the it, thing is, um, I am heterosexual as well, but. Like if I were a gay person, I don't think I would enjoy that atmosphere because it's so um, aggressive. It's so like macho driven. Like it's so testosterone loaded. Like 
I don't think I would enjoy because if they were gay, I don't think I would enjoy that either. I would enjoy because it's so um, they are they're objectifying each other. They're more about like yes. me out, look what I'm packing kind of thing. So I cannot imagine that if you're looking for a relation, whether it's you know heterosexual or homosexual in your life, like I couldn't imagine like enjoying that atmosphere. So such an aggressive and see I, uh, I and manhandling type of atmosphere. You just uh, you just mentioned something that just made me think. Now there, a lot of people initially thought this was a condemnation on the homosexual community which i i don't think that it is if anything like you no, said the way that the way that the men look at each other in this movie this is just a condemnation on the way that men treat a people that they desire you know people they they they, yes, they check yes. out you know just like the, the men aggressively check out and hit on women in other movies it's just, it's just, it just so happens that we've got men aggressively hitting on men. This is not a condemnation on the homosexual community. Yes, yes exactly. This yeah, is like a, you could, if you replace like you know the gay scene with like a like a heterosexual bar, it would be the same situation. It, it would be absolutely. just like women being fought up by being so like aggressively fought and all that. Like you have to have bouncers all over the park to deal with these handsy aggressive males. Right. Dudes and, just putting their hands on women, but yeah, like the behavior is kind of like the, the these dudes. They make PSA videos now about you know how to approach a woman like these men who accost <laughs> women and and like right. walking down the street or whatever. It's the same energy. It just happens to be um, homosexual. That's it. So let's. Uh, I mean, and, and and this movie. Let's let's not forget that. I mean, along. I only mentioned that there's a this. I mean, this is predominantly Pacino's movie. We got Paul Servino, but I mean, we we cannot forget about the gorgeous and talented. Karen Allen, who portrays Nancy Gates as yeah. is um, Steve Burns's girlfriend, and she's ostensibly, other than a few very minor characters, most of them just mentioned off screen. She's like the only female character in this movie, um, but she yeah, holds yeah. she holds her own, and like you said, the most intimate parts of this movie are between uh, Pacino and Allen. The, those are the, the the most intimacy yeah. the most intimacy that we see between two people is between a man and a woman um and you made a, you you had mentioned a very interesting thing that I did not pick up on we never see i mean we we follow uh, pacino's character when he goes undercover we see his undercover apartment um that he uses, you know, in his investigation, but we never see his apartment beforehand. And I, I never picked up on that. Every time that um, Pacino and Alan are together, it's it, it's her apartment, and it's a beautiful apartment. And like you said, it it lends itself to to that this woman is professional. She's got a she clearly has a good job, you know, and she's a confident woman. She's gorgeous. She's intelligent. Um, but I, I think you made a very interesting point about some of the music choices when they're together. It shows an air of sophistication. Can you do you remember that point that you had mentioned? Uh, yeah, like I was mentioning how, um, as you pointed out earlier, Pacino is a bit of a blank slate, and maybe in the longer cut we do get more of that. But for for the cut that we have, for the what we see. The most you get of a sense of a background of Pacino is um, in either at her place or in his own place. And the first time we see them together, it's a, it's a kind of a tender scene. They're in bed together, just kind of like 
hinting that they had sex and they're just kind of after sex cuddling. And in the background, I can't, I'm not sure, but I thought I, I heard classical music, like soft classical music. And he's also explaining, I'm going to do something. I'm going to go away for a while. I can't really tell you too much about it. And this also gives us a sense of progression. Like we start with a semi-blank slate for Al Pacino. Like I said, we, we get a hint from who he's with, with Nancy, that maybe they, he has a, he's educated and he has some sophistication. The people he chooses to work in, uh, to interact with in his personal life. Is sophistication. The next time we see him, it's again, it's at Nancy's place, and it's a very aggressive uh, sex scene, like a heterosexual sex with her, and aggressive sex scene. And the next time we see him at his place, he's a little confused. He's sort of like, he mentions what he's doing is affecting him, but he never really goes where, and I cannot remember if she asks him how, and but he doesn't answer. But this gives us an interesting progression as he, um, as he let's say, he goes under. He starts getting further and further into character, we get a sense of um, who he is and how that's affecting his life. And uh, we, uh, how would I say this? Um, yeah, we, we start getting a little more of a sense of who he is and, and that uh, how it's affecting his life. But we don't learn that much more of a life before that. Maybe in the longer cut, we get a sense of maybe him hanging out at his own place. But all we see is the scenes at his place, at Nancy's place, essentially, or at his place when he goes undercover where he um, also starts a friendship with a neighbor, which is actually a really, I really like that. There's scenes together, I really enjoy that because you get a sense that Al Pacino really likes him as a person. Like he really enjoys hanging out with this uh, person, this character who was in a relation with another, um, another uh, a partner who is away at the moment. And uh, where are you on these? I like these scenes a lot. And in some ways this character, I forgot his, the name of the actor and the character's name, but I, I liked him a lot because he felt like a sort of like an innocent person in a world that is kind of sleazy and depraved and very um, indifferent. Everything about the world is very indifferent. Like when they meet the you know the very aggressive gay men, it's very much about anonymity and sex. But this person, we really get to know him as a uh, we really get to know him as a person, and like I really liked him. He was probably my favorite character after Nancy Allen. I mean, after Nancy Nancy Allen, I just. <laughs> merge her name and her actor name and her real name so yeah i think that's also very important um uh, one of the things that when i was doing the research for this i i never i haven't read the novel cruising but i know that there was two major changes that were made from the novel f into the movie and we're gonna talk about one of them right now because you brought it up and we'll talk about one of them later on, so remind me. Um, but the first major change from the novel is that in the novel, the back, uh, Pacino's character, Detective Burns, has a backstory uh, that's fleshed out for us. And it's not a pleasant one. Uh, he, the, his backstory includes being racist and homophobic, and when he was in the military service, ha hazing... Uh, what he thought were uh, weaker people and um, using some choice some choice words, some F-bombs were dropped. And I I'm glad that, that Friedkin scrapped that backstory because in order for us to want to follow Pacino through this, this investigation, through this, through this mystery, it's very important that he remains likable. And 
he is extremely likable, and he is not the least bit homophobic in this movie. And I think that's very important to realize. I think um, when he's initially brought, asked if he to, if he was interested in the assignment, the way that Servino uh, approaches him, it's a little crass, it's a little vulgar, but as you so aptly noted um, previously when we were talking, it's a test for him. He asks, he doesn't ask him if he wants to go undercover. Um, he asks him that if he's ever gotten, uh, he's ever received fellatio from a man or if he's ever, you know, had sex yeah. with a man. I'm cleaning it up for our podcast, but he asks him in very crass and very vulgar manner. Mm. It, it, it's a test. Yeah, to, it's a test because Sorvino knows that if he's going to be able to crack this case and actually like infiltrate this scene, he needs to be able to handle questions like this. He needs to know what he's going up against. So instead of flying off the handle and being like, what are you talking about? I, I, why would you even insinuate like this kind of thing? He professionally, calmly just answers the questions. No, you know, no, can't say that I have. And mm, yes. that gives yeah, us he sort of laughs it off, tries to dismiss it with like a laughter kind of no, right. no, no, no like, I can't say that I have. Yeah. And then we get into the meat of the, the mystery, the meat of the story, where um, it, this is a, I I like this a lot of, from a cinematic standpoint because we've seen. Has it, is it one murder or two murders that we've seen at this point? Like when Al Pacino has approached, uh, I think I want to say two, but I'm not sure. I actually, th- I, he, I think there's uh, more. Sorry, I was gonna say I, th- I believe there's more because he kind of. I think he sh- like there, there's uh, one of those old school uh, like boards where they have uh, tacked up like some of the victims. Um, I, I oh, believe okay, yes, I, yes. I believe there's like at least three or four at this point. Uh, Pacino's brought in because of the opening scene. Um, where they find that that hand, and um, you know, it's I I think the initial detective shrugs it off. He's like, well, if there's not the rest of the body, then there's nothing to investigate, and you know, he's just kind of being a. Yes, a, I remember that. You know, rather, <laughs> there's nothing they can do because there's just not enough. Like the forensics guy is insisting, like you know, there's partial fingerprints. I can reconstruct that, but he said, well, there's no motive, so there's nothing we can do with that. And the the forensic guy's kind of annoyed at him, but. The guy's like, good, the detective is goodbye, like, um, you know, have a good day for it. Like, you know, he's, he doesn't want to hear it. Like, no, like, going by the book, I don't have enough to do anything. Right. But for me, like, what I like about that scene from a cinematic, or rather that said, that sequence of events from a cinematic standpoint is that we see the murders, we see how they happen, but it it is until we meet with Pacino and um, Edelstein, the, the captain, Paul Servino, that Pacino, um, sorry, Edelstein breaks it down and says, the um, murders the, we have these murders happen like um and these are not you know members of the mainstream he actually makes a point the movie makes a point of establishing this is not mainstream gay community this is heavy leather this is like a snm this is you know like the more the more hardcore type uh, members of the gay community like a subset of the gay community the movie right. actually tells you that but what i liked a lot about that sequence and that it pays off is we've seen all these things happen these murders but it isn't until we're sitting with al pacino and with Burns and with Edelstein, that Edelstein points out the reason why Pacino was chosen is because he looks like the guy, the general build. He's got like a slender to athletic build, dark hair, pale. And it's like, oh, okay, I see why they chose him. Like you see initially the criteria, like he happens to look the part. Right. But then 
on the next scene where he's with Karen, what we mentioned earlier, where they're in bed cuddling, he mentions, I gotta go do this. And he talks about how I'll get the gold batch right out of the gate. Meaning, maybe you don't have to do an exam. You don't have to do X amount of hours. Like if he does that and he pulls that out, he gets to be detective. He gets brought into the detective squad immediately. Right. So that's another little hint about Al Pacino's character. Like he is ambitious. He wants to get out of the, you know, wearing a uniform into the detective squad. So I like how that unfolds over X amount of minutes, over a number of scenes, and how we also get a lot of insight into the case. And that's why, again, it's a fantastic murder mystery. There is so much information being given to you visually, but it doesn't really click. It doesn't really all come together in your head until that sequence when Edelstein and, and Burns sit down to talk and he breaks down the particulars of the case and why he's being chosen and like, are you interested? And then it plays out on the next one, like, I can be detected immediately. Yeah. And from there, we go into the apartment and into his first trips into the club, which is tentative, awkward. He doesn't quite know what to do. But over the next series of sequences, he gets more acclimated. He gets into that. Right. And uh, like you said, I, I think another thing that's very important to, in developing Pacino's character in this movie is that, you know, we do spend a lot of time w when he's doing this investigation that he's he's going to these these heavy leather clubs, but he develops a a a, a very strong friendship, and and I think this is important. Um, again, as proof that this movie is not condemning the gay community in any sort of way, is that his he develops a friendship with an openly gay man who's not into this community. He's not involved in this community. He just hap he's got a partner. He wants to be a playwright, you know, and he becomes like Pacino's uh, best friend throughout it. They they develop a friendship. And you know, the character himself, yeah. the character says, you know, it's like cruising scares the hell out of me. And I mean, like that's that that's another reason, and it, I think it's time that we start talking a little bit about the controversy behind this movie because it's it, it's it's very um it, it's interesting because th this movie when it was first announced and when it was in production, it, it kind of split the gay community in New York City. A lot of the people that yes, yeah. a lot of the people that were actually um, involved. Um, in in this underground scene, we're actually uh, you know proponent. We're actually in favor of the movie. Propose. I don't. I don't know what word I was trying to use. Anyway, they're. they're um, well, the I do. I do know what you mean. Like I remember reading about the, the trivia about how, um, like you said, like there were people who were helping William Freakin. They were acting as consultants, people within the mainstream gay community, but. I guess at large, the the, lar the larger segment of the gay community was against it, and they were sort of encouraging boy. And they were boycotts. They were boycotts off camera that we don't see because you know, like the they they were limiting access to. Right. But I guess they were doing whatever they could to sort of ruin the production. Like uh, apparently, they would like blow horns or make noise or do whatever off camera to try to like um, slow down or just disrupt the the uh, the, uh, the production, the film production. Right. And I guess um, they ruined post, it. They had to do a lot of ADR and dub sounds because I guess a lot of the sound being recorded on set was not usable because of um, the cheering, the hooting, the the hollering, like whatever they could do to uh, just not you know prevent the th the movie from getting made. Right. Yeah. There was there were protests. There was demonstrations. We had we had uh, 
part of the population that was very supportive of the movie, involved with the movie, like you said, used as extras in some of the scenes. And then we had another portion of the population that was doing demonstrations, doing protests, blowing air horns, blasting music, yelling, trying to ruin scenes and, well, successfully ruining the audio for certain scenes um, that, yeah, they had to be redone yes. in, in, in ADR. And it's very interesting. Uh, the the journalist that I mentioned earlier, Arthur Bell, who wrote the articles that inspired this movie about the bag murders, was the one that kind of uh, started this whole uproar against this movie. And I... I I'm not kidding. Yeah. He actually his notes his uh, story. Yes, was uh, the basis or at least part of his story, part some articles of the story. Yeah, so he had written the articles about the bag murders, those those six bodies that had turned up in the Hudson River, and then when he heard the movie was being produced, um, here's my issue, and it, it, it's it's an issue I will I will stand by. I the, my big issue is that they were they were purposely or unpurposefully kind of fed misinformation. Uh, apparently, a lot of these people were under the impression that the plot of this movie was that Pacino was going to be playing a cop that goes undercover, that goes into the into the the gay community, but upon exposure to the, the, the scene, he becomes psychotic and starts killing people. And that's simply not the case. So... I mean, we've we've got an undercover <laughs> cop. Yeah. yeah. So, like, if that was the kind of if, if I was a, a, a gay man in the eighties and um, that was uh, you know that 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 was the story that I heard, I would be upset, you know, uh, with good yeah, reason. Yeah. I my, my big issue is that these people were condemning a movie that they hadn't even seen, hadn't been completed. Yeah. You know, it's one thing. That if all this, uh, I mean, there was controversy after the movie came out, obviously, but to not even have seen the movie yet and just to condemn it, I mean, I I, I don't want to throw around the word ignorant, but it is kind of ignorant. Ignorant is, you know, like I mean, and we're we're all guilty of this. We kind of sometimes we judge things without we judge a movie based on its trailer, but or we judge a book by its cover, as the cliche is. But these people were judging a movie just based on pretty much misinformation, you know, to begin with. Um, and, I mean, I get it. I, I think that if a lot of these protests and demonstrations happened after the movie, I think that they would have been uh, just a fraction of what they were during the movie because they would have seen the movie and been like, oh, that's that's not Pacino going. Pacino's on our side. Pacino's befriending like his best friend in the movie happens to be gay and he's he's trying to find a serial killer that's targeting gay men okay like he's on our side you know that's the thing um and you're kind of exactly yes he is he's very concerned with getting um, him and actually edelstein too like edelstein really just wants to take care of the case he wants to solve and there is one brief scene where we see where um He's getting pressure from above. It's like that one scene where he goes into his office and someone is there. I don't know exactly who he was, but um, I'm guessing maybe he was the chief of police or like the liaison, the police liaison. But he mentions how he had been, just, he just came from a meeting with like um, uh, maybe uh, the mayor's assistant. And um, 
some local leader in the gig community and just a number of people who were basically demanding results, like, like expecting results. So Bolsonaro wants to solve the case. And this is the thing that happens in a lot of movies too, where like by putting pressure on the police, they start doing things that probably are not the most effective at taking care of the problem, but get results, you know, like there's publicity, like, oh, we found the killer. But uh, yeah, like Paul Servino is also concerned. Like he really wants to just solve this case. He really wants to take just to get, take um, actually find the actual killer, not just someone for the press. Right, and um, yeah. So I mean, that's the thing. We're, we're dealing with a murder mystery here, and there there was a lot of controversy. Uh, one of one of the things I read that was absolutely horrific, though, is that uh, about two months after the release of this movie, this movie was released. Uh, in February eighth, nineteen eighty, so just just around the corner from Valentine's Day. There's nothing like a good uh, good Valentine's Day movie like Cruising of all things. But um, uh, unfortunately, a former New York transit cop uh, shot up a bar that was showing this movie and went off on that. He said that people, yeah, that all the gays needed to die, and he wow. was, yeah. So, I mean, this movie, I, I I mean, we can't, again, you can't really blame this movie for causing this incident. The man was, was you know, what under psychiatric evaluation, he's still institutionalized as being, you know, there was something, there was something wrong oh, upstairs. Man. You know, the uh, uh, the stairs didn't reach the, 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 the the top floor of the penthouse, you know, there was, there was a, there was a, a loose wiring there. So, you know, we can't really blame. I, and I know every time we have a horrific incident, you know, I, re- I remember distinctly like when Columbine happened that they were trying to blame movies mm. and music and you just, it's not as simple as that. It's just not. And I mean, this is not the podcast to, to dive into the psychology of real life, murders but it's just it's just not that simple you know it's people want an easy answer which which kind of goes back to this movie because at one point they have they have a suspect in custody um and Mm. uh, and uh, (laughs) and it leads to one of i i gotta think that it was intentionally meant to be hilarious so we have pacino um has a suspect and uh they cruise one another and they go to a to a hotel and uh Pacino has got himself all like he he thinks he's got the right guy here and um but the uh, the cops the cops barge in a little too soon but they pick him up anyway and they take him in for interrogation they think they got the right guy um and they're trying to scare they're trying to scare Pacino as the undercover guy and they're trying to scare the other guy, the suspect that they have in custody. And all of a sudden, door opens up, we get this huge, and I mean huge, this six foot something absolutely jacked black man wearing nothing but a cowboy hat, boots, and a jockstrap just walks up and straight up slaps Pacino in the face and I remember the first yeah. time watching it, I was like, what the, what is this? Like, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> and it turns out, it's, yeah. it, it turns out that the, the guy that was portraying this, 
this uh it turned it, it was a cop they were trying to you know he in the, in the movie he was a cop they were just trying you know they were trying to um they were trying to uh get a rise out of him and try to like really scare him to trying to you know trying to hopefully that like like please don't unleash this large half naked black cowboy on me um, I would imagine he was very effective at interrogations. Yeah, he was a real life cop. It was a real life cop. Yeah, they they um, you know that. Oh, okay. I mean, it was. I I guess I, I I'm I'm guessing since this movie came out in the '80s, uh, he's probably still not on duty. But it was that was not an actor. That was an actual cop, and he was kind of. They kind of used him in interrogation scenes just to kind of intimidate the witness. Because this guy's huge. Like, oh, yeah. He's huge. Yeah, I would imagine. He was very effective, yeah. And he was very effective in this scene, too. It's both, like, scary and funny because, like you said, like, he walks in in this outfit, doesn't say a thing, smacks Pacino so hard that he knocks him out of his chair and then just walks out. That's it. Like, that's it. And then they separate them. And Pacino, like, at first he's like, what was that? But then we see them in the next room and then, oh, okay, so he's a cop also. He's, in, he's part of the interrogation. Uh, but like Pacino goes up to him and man, you really hit me. You yeah. really hit me. He, he really hit him. He, like, he, he posted his lip. He's bleeding from the mouth. A oh yeah, he got he got he smacked the hell out of him. So um. Yeah, but, like, <laughs> no explanation. He just comes in, smacks him, and just goes out again. So <laughs> and they don't explain. They just keep leading on him with the questions. Right, and it turns out that the, they got the wrong guy. Um. But uh, another character, while we're talking about uh characters there's a um there's a character a, a cop played by joe spinell uh best known mm, yes. best known for the movie uh maniac which you haven't seen is a great slasher movie about a guy and his love of his mom and mannequins and scalping women so that he was also actually in the godfather with pacino anyway he plays a cop that um was based on a cop in real life. Uh, well, a pair of cops that were they were they were they were hassling and and running down uh, g- gay people. They, they would um, they would in the movie that the, they're hassling them for, for sex, um, but it, in real life, uh, the um, the cop Randy Jurgensen, the one that served as his technical advisor and the one that was uh, uh, kind of like Pacino's role was based <laughs> upon. Was was brought in because there was there was a two cops that were going around hassling gay gay people and making them, you know, stealing their money, taking them to the ATMs to withdraw money, taking them to the fam- like extorting money left and right. Um, but we have this cop who turns out, you know, who's the most homophobic cop, yet he, you know, he he picks on transvestites and drag queens for for sex and hassles you know he's he's hassling the gay community turns out the whole time this homophobic yeah. this homophobic asshole is actually a closeted homosexual because we see him we see him in one of the clubs with Pacino he turn you know yeah yeah that that there was a scene where Pacino like um I guess when when he gets a little more confident and he starts sort of like he's kind of roping I guess potential suspects and so he goes, I think he's in, in the archway under one of the bridges in Central Park. And Joe Spinell, like Joe Spinell's character, walks past. And, like, they're staring at each other, like, really staring each other down. But I guess another dude comes up. I guess the one the one that Pacino's interested as a suspect comes along and he goes with him. 
But uh, yeah, Joseph and Neil is sort of like uh, they were staring at each other, and it was interesting moment because they're both cops, but they don't know it. They don't, you know, one is out of uniform, and Al Pacino is undercover, and it's uh, an interesting parallel to how sort of like um he keeps turning up too because um as you point out earlier in this in the movie he um he uh how would I say he harasses a pair of cross-dressing homosexuals one of which one, yeah one of them and had... then we found out that one of them is an informant and he actually is kind of close with Edelstein with Paul Sarvino's character and he kind of mentions him but he doesn't have much to go on but gradually through the movie we get a little bit of more information on that on, on Joe Spinell's character I, I forget this in one this in one was his character's name um yeah the um Let's see. Joe Spinell's character was Patrolman DeSimone, and the DeSimone. Uh, and uh, the the the, the cross dressing uh, informant has a great name. It's uh, Da Vinci. He's simply known as Da Vinci. Um, oh wow! I forgot what his I didn't notice that. That's really funny. Yeah. Yeah, and um, uh, the best friend I. His name is um, Ted Bailey. That's the best friend that Pacino makes throughout the movie. Oh, Ted Bailey, yes, yeah, okay. And the the killer that's apprehended at the end, I believe his name was Stuart, Stuart Richards. But uh, The very final one, the one that they're trying to plead with in the hospital bed? You know? Yeah. Okay. I think I can't remember. I think that's his name, but yeah. So let's talk about the killer, or more more likely the killers in this movie. We talked. Yes, yeah. we, we, we talked a lot about how this I mean, movie. It's, it's, it's more killers and it sold the crime. Like it, it might have arrested one killer, but it probably left. It created more multiple killers along the course of the investigation. Maybe possibly. Right, and so at the end of the movie. Pacino thinks he gets his man. They meet up in the park, and um, it's, you know, it looks like, you know, they're, they're cruising each other, and they end up in the park. Uh, Pacino, I think, stabs him and then arrests him, and then they're in the hospital, and it turns out they can link him to, I think they can only link him to one murder with... Um, it was early in the movie. There's a peep show murder, and I think they can link him either with fingerprints or DNA. Yes. Um, yes, I think, uh, and I think it's only very flimsy. I think the only reason why they are able to link him is because he was uh, part of a class of a professor. Because one of the victims, I think, I'm gonna say the second victim, or maybe the first victim, was a professor of of language. I think a professor of language or a professor of literature. At Columbia, I think, and he, uh, Stuart Richard, the final, the the the, the one that Pacino arrests, uh, I think he was in his class, and that's what they work on. And along the course of uh, Pacino following that clue, we learn certain things about him that make him a likely candidate. But again, the movie makes it not clear, like it doesn't make it very clear that he is the suspect. They have someone who is a very close fit, but maybe not, maybe not the actual guy they are looking for. And I guess this was by choice. Like William Friedkin deliberately left it left it this way. Yes. So, and, and the, the point, the other change, the the other major change from the novel is that we're given 
we're given a, a clear cut killer. We're given one killer that's revealed, and we're also given motivation for why he's killing. The only motivation that we kind of get from this 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 guy is that we have this um scene on a park bench where it, it appears that he's talking to his father. It turns out there's no his father's not there. I'm not not sure if his father is dead or has disowned him, but his father isn't actually there, but he's having this conversation with his father and um it's basically kind of him since he's essentially talking to himself is kind of him uh juggling with his sexuality and like wanting to be gay mm-hmm. but also having this desire to kill gay men so he's a very he's a very confused young man he's got he's he's, he's got some uh, uh yes he's got some wiring that could use some work um some uh some screws that need to be tightened up so yes it, yes, it turned yeah we we find out it, we it's a, it's fuzzy but what we find out is first of all his father died a long time ago his father died a very long time ago so that's right in the right part, very likely it's uh, it's uh, something he constructed in his own mind either but the, what the scene implies is that like you said maybe he did both maybe he disowned them and uh disinherited him right and in his mind maybe he because he never had that moment he never had that moment of closure with his father he thinks maybe by killing homosexuals he can make it up to him he can redeem himself in his father's eyes but then again this is entirely in his head it's just like he said he's uh disturbed he just simply cannot come to terms with his sexuality and i guess attaches his his self-worth to uh, a dead father who may not have approved of it right this is why he is a very good candidate as a suspect as a prime suspect and quite possibly um I can see why the police would would say that because he is in that circle. He is very close to the victims, so the previous victims, and he had a knife with him. Now you could argue the knife is for protection, but again, like in the context of scenes, it could play out as well. He tried to attack um, Burns, and Burns defended himself, and that is how uh, Edelstein tells uh, him that's how they're going to, you know, that's how they was presented to the judge in the in court. Right, yeah, they're kind, they're kind of a steamrolling in them here in a, in a, a, a little bit, um, but yeah, we, we get the, um, I think it's interesting. You said maybe this, this conversation that he thinks he's having on the park bench, maybe he's just replaying a, an actual conversation that he had with his father years ago. You know, maybe yes, yes, it's, it's when he was like maybe fifteen or some. Let's say he was maybe caught in some situation with another with a, a kid. His, and that that started the whole thing. And maybe he had a conversation with his father about how he needs to make it up to him. And he's still, you know, like I said, maybe from when he was a, a teenager, he's carrying that into adulthood with him. Sure. And it's also seen at the end of the movie when they're they're um, going through his apartment. Um, he's got a box of letters, unmailed letters that he had written to his father. Um and I yes, and that's what we find out that his father died long, uh, quite I think ten years ago. Right. And um, presumably he's like in his mid twenties. He's like twenty five, twenty six. So presumably he was a teen when that happened. He was a teenager in mid teens when that's that happened. Right. So, um, so they got they think they got their guy, but before everything is all wrapped up nicely, uh, unfortunately we've got another victim. We've got. We got poor Ted dead, stabbed 60, yes, yes, yeah. 67 times. 
he's stabbed. Oh, now, no, I didn't. I missed that detail that he was stabbed that many times. So, I, 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 from watching lots of Law and Order and lots of true crime things, that many stab wounds is usually what they call overkill, which implies a crime of passion. It's not just a simple. Yeah, it's, there's so much anger. Yeah, there's so, so much there, anger. There, like well, a, not just anger. Not just feeling. It's a lot of emotion. Yeah, it's not just anger. This could have been. Um, so we don't know for sure who killed poor Ted, but it doesn't seem to fit the mo of our of our killer. Um, you know. No, no, the killer. Well, we have an mo so far, and I guess uh, on a side note, the because of the first, you know, the way the movie opens, you know, what we find this arm. And later on, we we find out that there was like an entire torso they pulled out of the river. That to me hints at another killer. That hints at another killer who just hacks his victims and then tosses body parts out. Whereas the killer that we see has a very specific thing he does involving um, a steak knife and uh, uh, like a little uh, what is it called a ditty or a, a rhyme or yeah, he's got a, a little nurse before he kills him. I'm here, you're here, we're here. Yes. Uh, we hear that throughout the movie. And it's interesting. They they purposefully chose in these murder scenes, different people portrayed the murderer. So you can't really tell. Yes. They purposely did that. So we've got like different body shapes going on. Um I think at times maybe a different voice, although I'm pretty sure it is the same voice. But we do have this this creepy little nursery rhyme. Um, but the only other person that ever sings the nursery rhyme is Al Pacino at the end of the movie. Which, so yes. it's very ambiguous because I I think they got I think we're dealing with my my personal theory is that we're dealing with. The guy that they got locked up for the one or two murders that they can link him to, they're trying to link him to everything. I don't think he's responsible for all the murderers. We've got Ted's murderer who is either, in my mind, was either killed by Pacino or was killed by his his jealous partner because there is a scene where Pacino is going to talk to Ted um, but instead meets his partner and they they get into a, they get into a very heated argument um, and uh, the the partner actually accuses Pacino of being in love with Ted and and uh, yes. Pacino kind of flies off the handle um, they almost come to it almost becomes a physical confrontation but so we've got uh, we, I, I we got we got so many different killers here and that kind of that lead, you know, that was intentional by Friedkin. He wanted he wanted to leave it open ended, and um, this wasn't this wasn't a sequel bait. Friedkin never, you know, did franchise movies. He never, you know, did fr- uh, you know he never wanted to start a series of movies. Um, th- there have been sequels made to Friedkin's movies, but they weren't done by him. I, I know there's the French Connection too, and there's like. At least half. Oh a, yeah, that's true. There's like half a dozen Exorcist movies, but they weren't involved with Friedkin, so it's not sequel baiting. <laughs> it's simply Friedkin. That's the way that he wanted the movie to end. He the movie ends 
with we get a very interesting we get um cut scenes of Pacino returning to Karen Allen and telling him that he that he's back and that he wants to tell her everything and he starts shaving and she starts putting he's left some some clothing there it's very interesting she puts on the leather jacket she puts on the sunglasses and then she puts on he's he's got the killer's hat which is very interesting because you know yeah i mean that that's the killer's outfit and i don't remember him ever wearing anything like that like uh, we only see the killer wearing that i think pacino when i i'm wrong i could be wrong but i remember him mostly wearing a black white beater like a tank and jeans mostly so i'm like where did he get that from like like he's picking that up like he's done with it and he's putting it away but it's like I don't think he ever wore that. Only the killer, or at least the killer that we see, wore that. So it's a little confusing. Uh, That's the confusion that I guess Ben freaking left us with. Right. He. So he he leaves us with. She's putting on this stuff. She's looking into the mirror. She's kind of. She's, in a matter of like thirty seconds, going through the transformation that Pacino goes through, while he's, undoing his transformation by shaving off his beard. That, you know, he kind of had like a scrub, like that, that, uh, five o'clock shadow look going on when he was yeah, infiltrating the club. Yeah, to go with that sort of macho yeah. look. That's so kind of he's, look. he's shaving and then the, you know, then he looks into the mirror, which ends up looking directly into the audience member and the movie, movie then cuts to the tugboat. But I think the whole, we'll, we'll talk about the tugboat in a second, but the whole thing is that he's looking in the mirror and Friedkin commented that he wanted he wanted to leave it ambiguous. He wanted people to not really know. And I mean, who, who killed Ted? Did they really get the right guy? Is this going to be the end of the murders? We don't know. And the whole thing of him looking, the whole thing of him looking in the mirror is that how well do you really know yourself? What are you capable of? How well do you really know the people around you? Like he, he wanted to leave it open ended and he wanted a lot of his he like these are the kind of movies that lead to discussions like we have here in the cult film companion mm-hmm. yes because we're not spoon-fed everything and we're not given an ending that's all wrapped up nice in a neat little bow and everything's all hunky-dory and everything's clear you know we open up with the tugboat finding a body part and we end with the tugboat coming down the river and the the um the implication is that, you know, just because you got one one killer, I mean, especially in a city like New York City, you get one killer. I mean, you've you've only gotten a fraction of the crime element out, out of there. You know, someone else is going to take yeah, its place. Yeah. It's kind of like um, I it, wish, it's an endless cycle. Uh, I <laughs> Go ahead. It's an endless cycle. We open with the tugboat, we close with the tugboat. It just shows that it's just a circle. Yeah, this yeah. Isn't a, this that's, isn't that's a really sh- clever. It's like a way, good way to bookend the movie. But like, I, as I was watching that scene, that final scene with the tugboat, I was like thinking, is freaking implying that we're going to find another body part? Uh, and I like that because it's kind of a peaceful moment. It's like quiet. You can hear maybe the sea, the water, seagulls maybe. And then there's like a hard cut to a title card. And the rock kicks in again, and I was like, "That's such a cool, like, a kick-ass way to end the movie." Right. Like, I right. liked it a lot. Yeah. It's kind of like the confusion and the how he doesn't um, answer questions. I like that. But like you said, um, 
movies used to be about that, or at least a good number of movies were about giving you something to talk about afterwards. Like, you know, movies used to be that way. Like, we're in a weird place now where, like, um, we're slowly kind of coming back to movies in theaters. I don't particularly miss the movie, the theatrical experience, but movies used to be about that. About After the movie's over, you go out, get coffee and pie, or go have dinner and talk about the movie, talk about what, you, what this could mean, about what that could mean. Current movies, I don't know if they do that that much. But this plus, yeah, this definitely gives you so much because one thing after after our first discussion that I wish I'd done, uh, I, I wanted to almost go back and look at is, um, as you mentioned, uh, Al Pacino goes to check on Ted. You know, he wants to just check on him. and But it's uh, his partner who opens. Like, by the way, we didn't mention is James Reamer, actually. Very young James Reamer. Yep. I didn't recognize him because his hair is long and... He's very groomed in this movie. Right. But uh, as you mentioned, it leads to an altercation because I guess maybe James Reinhardt thinks Al Pacino is kind of trying to move in on his, his partner. And it leads to a very confrontational scene where James Reinhardt holds out a knife to Al Pacino. Like, yeah, you want to go? You want to go ahead? And I kind of wish I tried, I could see what knife it was because very early in the movie, just before the first murder happens, we see the killer's knife. And it's a steak knife. It's not like a... You know, like a hunter's knife, something you go play in a hunting in a sporting goods store. It's actually a steak knife, something you would buy like at a, you know, like a Sears or JC Penney. I guess one of those places. It's just a, or in a restaurant, which yeah. is actually one of the ways we see in the movie how we, how the killer might have gotten his his knife from a from a restaurant. Right. Which so which I kind of wish I've been able to see what knife James Seymour had, and, and maybe that was another little clue that freaking left there to misdirect us. Right, yeah. So we've we've got yeah the um, the coroner or the forensics department. They they um, ascertain that it's just a regular steak knife. So they 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 they, they kind of go around to the restaurants and they have a, some of the detectives try to like you know um, they obtain one of the steak knives and yeah. So like we've got a pretty common weapon here. And um, one of the things that was interesting is that. Um, to kind of mix around this, the whole sex and violence kind of thing is that, uh, the knife penetrates the skin. Um, but also during sex, the penis penetrates a different body part, you know, take your pick. But I mean, the ultimate, yes. so we've got this kind of like Freudian kind of weirdness going on with, uh, with penetration and we got sexual penetration and then we've got the ultimate penetration, which is the knife that, that, that is the murder weapon here. Um, so it's interesting to note that 40 minutes of footage was cut from this movie. This movie originally clocked in at over two hours long and, um, it had to go to the MPAA 50 times before it got an R rating, fifty times, uh, Friedkin himself was okay with an X rating. Uh, that's not something that studio wanted, and I'm pretty sure he was probably. Imagine, yeah, the producers were worried about being able to, you know, draw. Uh, I guess an X rating would autom- immediately, would automatically, keep out certain people, certain uh, a certain segment of the audience would just know. I'm not seeing anything with an X rating, but an R rating, I guess. At least it still falls into adults, and this is very much a movie for adults, you know. Oh no, it is. But not only would it exclude part of the audience, but theaters would just refute, like a mainstream theater, a Cineplex. 
They're not going to show an R. They're not going to show an oh, X. Yes, they're true. not going to show an X-rated movie. So I. I'm, yes, yeah, exactly. So Friedkin was okay with an R, but I, I, I'm pretty sure he was probably contractually obligated to deliver. I mean, he, Friedkin was okay with an X rating, and. Yeah, you could imagine him just like, hey, here's my cut. I'm off to vacation. Yeah. Like, no, he, hold on a minute. No, like, we can't go with this. Like, yeah, he we, was probably. We probab- need to make our money back. This thing costs $12 million to make. Or $11 million to make. But like I said, not only what, what, he was probably contractually obligated. Like, they're like, we're not going to pay you unless you deliver an R movie. Like, we right, can't. Yeah, we- like, you're not just going to hand this movie and leave. Like, no, no, we got to work on this. And I'm thinking maybe there we might have gotten a little more of a glimpse of Al Pacino's character before he goes under. We would maybe see him in his own place. Maybe we'd see him doing more stuff with Karen Allen, uh, with Nancy. So maybe that's stuff. Uh, but if he, if, if he did, it's a good choice because it, it works in the context of what we see, the, the cut that we see. And that we, Al Pacino is a blank slate, so he's sort of, we are kind of his, he's our avatar to introduce us to this world. And and later on in how he's putting together the possible killer that we eventually, he eventually catches. So it's a good choice. It's a good way to sort of not infuse him too much with traits of his own personality, but to make him a little bit blank and, and just enough so that we, we kind of ride with him. We're seeing things through his eyes and learning with him. So it, right. it works out. In the end, it works out. It's very, it's a very clever choice of um, abstraction, I guess. You could say cinematic abstraction, let's call it. He's sort of making the character almost like a blank slate in the way that um, uh, Mad Max is a blank slate. The man with no name is a blank slate. So we identify with them more. Right. We we can kind of come up with our own backstory. Unfortunately, we'll never know because the the fo- the footage was lost. So uh, that that forty minutes. Because they were going, Friedkin was interested in doing a director's cut edition, similarly to how he did a director's cut of The Exorcist, and he wanted to do a director's cut for Cruising. Uh, the studio, for whatever reason, they lost the footage, and we'll never know. And maybe uh, Friedkin has never talked directly about it. The, the only way he's talked about the footage is in a very roundabout way. That's either it, we would have. It would have either been more ambiguous or less ambiguous. So it's absolutely. Oh wow, that's crazy. So his comments, <laughs> his comments are not really helpful. So we kind of have to deal. One thing I do know for sure that it would have been more graphic. Um, I think probably I think some of the club scenes would have been a little bit more graphic. One of the most, uh, for better or worse, memorable scenes. One scene that you'll never forget is a man hanging from a sex. Um, <laughs> sex chair from the ceiling or a sex yeah, sling? Yeah, like a type of thing or, or uh, a harness. It's I, something he's hanging in. Uh, There's a dude like greasing his his fist and elbow. You don't actually see it, but you get it. You know, from the other thing, you get what's going to happen or what happens eventually. Right. And it's kind of remarkable that we even got that much. I but, think, yeah. Yeah, like I guess maybe it was more explicit sexually, but I find it interesting that with all that extra footage, we we still wouldn't know too much about Al Pacino's character. You know, so it's interesting. I, I, I th- and it's interesting. You mentioned also that William Freaking doesn't want to say much, and I wonder if it's just him being kind of sly. He is kind of a mischievous character, let's say. He likes to kind of he knows the value of like mystery, I guess you could you could say, and he doesn't say much. And I think it's maybe 
that's his way of not, you know, like if he tells you everything, it's like there's no mystery left for you. So, so he kind of just maybe messes with the interviewers, doesn't say too much, or um, outright just lies and misdirects you. Yeah, he, you're, you're, you hit the nail on the head right there because, um, if, uh, disgraced, well, now disgraced actor James Franco. Do you know James Franco, the actor? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, he's disgraced. He's been disgraced. I didn't know that. I guess we kind of get into the topic here. We can tell me when you're done recording, you can tell me why he was disgraced. I'll tell you why he's disgraced so off top. No, no, no. But I do have a reason that I'm bringing him up is that he's also a director and he did a very short art film, which is called Interior Leather Bar, which is only 40 or 44 minutes long, which he, him and another filmmaker, I've never seen the movie. I really don't have any desire to see it claim that they tried to recreate the lost 40 minutes of footage from this movie. I'm not sure why they felt this was necessary. Like I said, I've never seen it. But James Franco called up called up um, Friedkin to ask him about it so that he could more accurately do it. And Friedkin's, res- Friedkin's response was, what missing footage? So, so there you go. He did. <laughs> But I find it so amazing that William freaking tells him that, and somehow he still tries. It's like, you have no idea. You have no clue. Like, the, like you said, the footage is lost. That footage is gone forever. Like, I guess back in those days, people didn't keep footage for directors because they just, anything that wasn't used, they would just probably throw it out. Right, right. But, uh, yeah, like, Franco would have been like a kid or a baby at this time. And it's like, you're still trying. You still want to try to reproduce that based on, on what? Like, you have nothing. There's no notes. I'm sure you have no... He had no production notes, so it's like, what are you thinking? Who knows? He was through a strange phase. Like, I mean, Franco was for a while. I remember he was going through a weird phase where he made like a bunch of movies. But that he started in also and all that. Yeah, yeah. We'll, 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 we'll talk about him off off podcast because we're getting yeah, we're yeah, getting because yeah, we we're, we're we're gonna start wrapping up here, and the last thing we need to do is talk about James Franco. Just a couple, <laughs> just a couple <laughs> quick. Yeah, and I'll tell you why he was so. Um, other, <laughs> so other than the kick-ass punk rock music, the uh, musical score was done by Jack Nietzsche um, using very non-conventional um, instruments, and he creates a very ominous, uh, anxiety-inducing moments throughout the scenes where we're not in the club. Um, the music is great. the The soundtrack is kick-ass. Uh, the movie was edited by Bud Smith. I did mention that James Conter shot this movie. This movie is beautifully shot. Um, very, like you yes, said, documentary style, kind of hands-off, very passive camera movements. Um, the movie uh, had a budget of $11 million. It did gross $19.8 million, which so it did recoup its money, but it didn't blow up at the box office, probably because of the yes. controversy. Also, it was not very well critically received at the time. It has since undergone a critical reappraisal, and is it's it's given up. It's it's seen more favorably now. One of the things that the mm. one of the things that the MPAA insisted upon the release of this movie is that a disclaimer be put at the beginning, and I'm going to read it here. Quote: This film is not an indictment of the homosexual world. It is set in one small segment of that world, which is not meant to be representative of the whole. Yes, yes. Uh, and we saw that Captain Edelstein actually tells you that, that, you know, this is not the mainstream gay community. This is a subset of the gay 
of the gay community. Uh, like a subset that is into like uh, S&M and leather. And yeah, that, we saw it. We see it. Yeah. Right. And, and Pacino commented, this is just a fragment of the gay population. And he, con- he uh, compared it to the Godfather and said, that's just a fragment of the Italian American population. Just because you see an Italian American doesn't mean he's in the mafia. Just because you see, right, yeah. just because you see a gay person doesn't mean that they're he- into heavy leather and cruising. And you know, a lot of times that's kind of, I mean, it, it seems that a lot of the controversy around this movie was, first of all, it was misinformation and it was overgeneralization. And upon viewing the final product, I don't see this movie as homophobic. I don't think I I wouldn't recommend this. I would have to think very carefully about who I would recommend this movie to. Um, I know personally, uh, my co-host Andrew has no interest in seeing this movie. Um, he is he, he is a proud and open gay man, and he has no interest in seeing this movie. And I don't blame oh, him. Um, I have a brother that is I have a brother that is gay, but I I don't think I would recommend this movie to him. Um, I think you said something. It's a cautious recommend. I think it's a great yes, yeah. It's a great murder uh, mystery, but you have to be able to. You have to. You're gonna have. You have to be mature enough, or either comfortable enough, to put up with some uh, quote unquote gay stuff. I mean, yes, yes, I would say that. Yeah, if you can get past maybe some semi-explicit S and M type of gayness, like you'll enjoy the movie because as a mystery is uh, just very well put together, just impressively put together. The cinematography is just fantastic it gives it this sort of sci-fi feel to the movie like a cyberpunk feel to it it's so well staged in the way it kind of gives you clues and how the clues pay off and the misdirection and i think what going back to what you said earlier briefly the critical like at the time it wasn't critically well received part of it had to do with the misinterpretation of what it portrays of gayness but part of it also i think had to do with just the unclearness of it, how it just doesn't give you that clear that final answer how William Freaky just wouldn't deliver wouldn't give you that, that very clear answer so yeah. I guess that frustrated a lot of in, a lot of reviewers I, I could see films at that time yeah I could see it um I, I'm okay with it I I can dig an ambiguous ending with the right movie and I think that this movie it plays with your your expectation and subverts them and I'm okay with the ambiguous ending. Uh, certain movies it works, certain movies it doesn't. I can't think off the top of my head of an ambiguous ending that I thought was... Uh, I can think of bad twist endings uh, all day long, but just like... Mm-hmm. Um, I I could see that it not... Uh, one thing I will say about the ending is that some people will not find it very satisfying because it leaves you with more questions than answers. That was That was on purpose. I mean, this is a movie that's supposed to be talked about i mean it's an important movie because it was it's kind of i mean friedkin was not a stranger to quote-unquote queer cinema he had done a movie called the boys in the band about gay lifestyles in the village uh that was a very well received cruising at the when it was released in 1980 was not well received uh it has since undergone uh, critical and kind of audience reevaluations. Um, and I think people are much more open to it 
especially now. So I think this is kind of like what my tagline. I think this is this is a movie that was a, a, ahead of the cinematic radar. This was a, this was a movie that was uh, very ambitious for the time to 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 depict such subject matter, such sensitive subject matter, um, in a very frank and realistic and adult without judgment i would also say like right. it doesn't judge it it's simply like she said like in like he said in the documentary style yeah and i'm with you on that too i am okay with this ending i like that i i mean i like that in movies i like movies that kind of challenge and make you think or or at least you know they they force you to to they challenge what you like uh, it, there's you know those movies if you want to sit down and watch like a mindless like a movie that's there too, but this movie does something else, and that's okay. Like, you, there's room for both. You know, you can have both. Absolutely. And I like what this movie does. I, I'm okay with this ending. I liked it very much. I thought it was a excellently put together. Yep, it's a great murder mystery. Uh, great performances, um, especially from Al Pacino, Karen Allen, and Paul Servino. The supporting cast is excellent. Yes. Uh, it's a great murder mystery. It just so happens to take place um, in the gay subculture and. I mean, if, you, if that's not your thing, that's not your thing. But it's it is it's a great murder mystery, just period. Regardless of any sexual implications or sexual politics that might be involved, it's just a great murder mystery. And I want to thank you, Melvin, for joining me here. Contact uh, Melvin at RoboPope on Twitter. Check out his comic, uh, the plot, right? Yes, the plot. Yes, the plot. Uh, you can. There's a link on my uh, Twitter profile at Robofull. And thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great time. This is. I love this stuff. I live for this kind of movie. Movies that challenge you. Movies that just you know they provoke. They provoke and but they challenge you. They challenge you what you know about yourself, what you know about the world. And this movie does that. You know, this movie definitely uh, provokes, uh, pushes you to see where your limits are. And if you can maybe reset new limits for yourself, you'll be pleasantly surprised. This is a really, really good movie. Absolutely. And um, uh, Melvin's comic, The Pulp, there's also going to be a link in the episode description here. Um, we are on Twitter at Cult Film Comp. Uh, hit us up. Tell us what you like about the show. Tell us what you don't like about the show. Hit us up with some movie recommendations on Twitter or on Instagram. Cult Film Companion on Instagram. Join the Cult Film Companion Facebook page. Um, email us at thecultfilmcompanion at gmail.com. I've already gotten some great movie recommendations. The list is ever-growing, and um, every time I do an episode, I seem to go down a rabbit hole where I discover more and more movies. So we're just getting started here on the Cult Film Companion podcast, and I want to thank, once again, Melvin um, for joining me at RoboPope on Twitter on twitter uh this won't be the the last time that you hear, hear melvin on our show we're um we're very glad that he was able to do this episode with us and we're looking forward to having him on in the future for melvin my name is chris cult film companion signing off